0: Good morning Church Livonia. So good to be with you today. I see you out there, Samantha, Mark, Dustin. Great to be here with you guys today. If this is your first time joining us on our stream, my name's Alex and I'm one of the pastors here. And if this isn't your first time, hey, welcome anyway. Glad you're here. Uh, We're in this series right now called Like a Good Neighbor. And the core scripture of this series, the thing that it's all based around, our why behind it, is this passage in Mark chapter 12 that says this, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So in this series, we've been looking at and asking the question, how do we really live this out in the real world? And so week one, we looked at like a good neighbor, we have to love God first. Week two, we talked about like a good neighbor, we walk toward the needs around us. Last week, Pastor Kate did a great job talking about like a good neighbor, we grab a corner talking about how our prayer for people is more important than our problem solving. And today, we are talking about like a good neighbor, we begin to notice. Martin Buber was a German Jewish theologian and philosopher, an author who lived from 1878 to 1965. He's best known for his classic and seminal work, I and Thou, talking about how people are made and meant to relate to each other in healthy ways. This book was released in 1923, just a few years after the end of World War I. But before the war began, Martin was a very different person. He considered the religious to be these mystical experiences, transcendence experiences that lifted him out of the earthly ordinary experiences of his everyday life, he was more concerned about the eternal than the temporal, about the heavenly than the earthly, more focused on ecstasy than daily existence and what lied beyond the world than the world itself. But one day after a morning of great religious enthusiasm where Buber just felt so transcended in this beautiful moment with God having these deep, powerful spiritual experiences, a young man came to speak. To Martin Martin was a well-known psychologist already at that time and the young man came uh, to have a conversation with Martin and they talked and it was they chuckled it was friendly and then the man left a few days later Martin found out that the young man had committed suicide and Martin writes this after coming to know that information I learned that he had come to me not casually but born by destiny not for a chat, but for a decision. He had come to me in this hour. And Martin felt that this instance was a judgment on his whole way of life. And he didn't regret that he hadn't predicted that young man's suicide, but that he was not fully present with this person who was in deep need and suffering. And Martin regretted that he had refused to notice what was really going on he realized in that experience that it is possible to have a profound spiritual life with a faith that can move mountains, but that such faith is worth nothing without a deeply present love for people. Now, this is an extreme example, but Martin learned in a deep and painful way that even though he really loved God, if he was gonna love people, he had to learn to notice. When it comes to living like a good neighbor, we often don't notice well. And one thing I want to make so clear this morning is to notice is necessary to love. To notice is necessary to love. The enemy of noticing is distraction. And the things that distract us, they're not always bad. Martin's relationship with God distracted him. That's not a bad thing. But it had kept him from being present with this person in need. Martin was so distracted by his own spiritual experiences, he didn't notice what God was trying to do around him in bringing this person to him. For some of us, we get distracted by our kids and their needs, and we stop noticing our spouse and their needs. Some of us get so distracted by work projects and demands of the job that we stop noticing our families, we stop noticing our friends, we even stop noticing ourselves. Some of us get so tight in adhering to schedules that we get distracted by them, refusing to notice people God may bring our way that weren't a part of our plans. And instead we see these folks as interruptions. I know this is a big one for me that I really had to work on. Some of us get so distracted by our grades and our need for a good GPA, we don't even notice our relationship with God is suffering. And some of us get so distracted by our friendships and their approval or disapproval of us that we lose sight of other things. Whatever it is, all of us are tempted by distractions and forget to notice the people around us. But without learning to notice, it's impossible to love our neighbor and therefore impossible to fulfill the great commandments. So if that's the case, the question I want to ask today is how do we learn to notice and live like a good neighbor? How do we learn to notice and live like a good like a good neighbor? That is our question for today. Well, today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 7 to answer that question where Jesus notices a woman in pain. Jesus is the master of all life. He's not just simply our Savior. He is the model human being. He lived a perfect life in the way that God designed all people to live. He is fully God and he's fully man. So today as we look at this interaction in Luke 7, we're not just looking at it for what Jesus did, but how he is modeling what it means to be the kind of people God has created us to be. So in Luke 7, we're going to start in verse 11, and it says this. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier, which is the casket. They were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So let's unpack what what this scripture is saying and what just happened here. So Jesus is on his way. Right now in in this portion of his ministry, in this part of the Gospels, Jesus is going town to town. He's preaching the kingdom of God. He's doing miracles. He's healing people. And a crowd has started to follow him. The day before, he was in this town called Capernaum. He had healed somebody there, and now he's passing to this town called Nain. Nain is a very small town. It is 1.56 square miles. Okay, like it is baby. It is baby. It's even smaller than Hamtramck, which is near us, right? And so Jesus has been doing these healings. There's a crowd following him. And then the scripture says this, I want to draw your attention just to that verse 12. It says, as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the town was with her. So let me paint this picture for us. Jesus is heading into this small town's gate, meaning that even in this small town, there were walls around the town. And there was one gate that everybody passed in and out through. And being that this is a small town, they probably didn't have large walls and probably didn't have a large gate. Jesus is trying to get into the town so he can preach and be on his mission. But as he's getting up to the, the gate of the town, this funeral procession begins to come out and he sees this woman and her son. And the fact that he sees this woman and her son means it's probably the front of the funeral procession, right? They're not at the back at the end of everything. They're going to the front and uh, his heart goes out to her, but There's a large crowd with her, a very large crowd, meaning that Jesus and his crowd can't get into the city while they're getting out. And because the crowd is so big and he's only seeing the front of the line, this is gonna take a minute. Now, Jesus could have become impatient at this or frustrated at this, you know, but he doesn't see this woman as an interruption or as an inconvenience. I don't know what Jesus' plans for the day were, Uh, but I doubt becoming a part of a funeral was on his agenda. Now, we don't know if Jesus felt frustrated or anxious about this interruption. I doubt it personally, right? But I know I would have. We don't know if Jesus threw up a quick prayer for patience, like, oh, Lord, these people drive me nuts, throwing off my day. But I do that. I doubt Jesus did. He's a pretty compassionate guy. Um, But what I do know is, like I said, when I get interrupted and inconvenienced, By somebody, when I am on a mission, um, I get pretty irritated and often pretty anxious. And I think I'm not alone in that. You know, I think things like, man, if I stop now, I'm not going to get done all the things that need to happen today. Or, man, how much energy is this going to cost me? Can't this person figure this out themselves? I don't think I have the emotional or the spiritual or the time. I, I just don't have what it takes to help this person right now or I think things like you got to be kidding me. Do you have any idea how full my schedule is? Can't you take care of this yourself? Or, you know, especially when we're driving. Are you blind? The speed limit's 45. Why are we going 10 under? <laughs> you know. I think things like this when I get interrupted and inconvenience fill in the blank with whatever happens when that happens to you. But the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus, in order to notice this woman, allowed himself to be interrupted, and he allowed himself to be inconvenienced. This is step one. Before anything else, Jesus allows himself to be interrupted and inconvenienced by this woman and her grief. He does not see this as an interruption. He sees this as a divine appointment. And if we're going to begin to notice the people around us, we have to be aware of what God is doing, seeing the interruptions to our schedule, not as distractions, but as divine appointments. The next thing Jesus does is he chose to see this woman. Jesus chose to see this woman. Jesus is passing by and he sees this woman's pain. And what I don't mean by that is he looks at the funeral and notices that there's a funeral. He does so much more than that. Before even having a conversation with this person, he is able to tell that the funeral is for a young man. And he's able to tell who that young man's mother is. He hasn't asked anybody, he's just noticing. And he can tell that this young man, actually his mom is now a widow and there's no one else to support her. He can see that for this woman, it's not just the loss of her son, it's the loss of her future. The Tyndale New Testament commentary tells us that without a male protector and provider, this woman's future was sunk she had no one to earn money for her and her ways of earning money in the first century were really limited there's no social security so not only is her son dead but she doesn't know how she's going to sustain herself moving forward into the future and on top of that um, there's the sorrow and loneliness of knowing that her family name ends here with this man who is now in a casket so jesus doesn't just see a funeral Jesus sees a person with a whole life, with layers and layers of pain, of need, of concern. And Jesus chooses to step into that story, which is the third and the most important thing that happens. Jesus incarnated in this moment. Now, what do I mean by incarnated? Well, this is a theological term that we use, uh, and there's a theological meaning, and there's a metaphorical meaning for it. So theologically, when we say Jesus incarnated, we mean that Jesus, who is fully God, leaves heaven and comes to earth. He left heaven and come to earth, taking on flesh. He entered time, being born of a human woman, experiencing all human pain and temptation, and yet at the same time, Jesus was 100% man, and 100% God. He incarnated into the world, leaving his world and entering our world, but somehow, some mysterious way, he didn't lose himself. He somehow is fully experiencing our world while maintaining and being fully connected to who he is as God in the flesh. He's 100% man and 100% God. So metaphorically, when we're talking about incarnating, we're referring to the act of leaving our own world to enter into someone else's pain, someone else's life, someone else's joy without losing ourselves in it. In verse 13, it says this, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, do not weep. That word compassion means to suffer with. I don't know if you know that, but co means together or with, right? Co-workers, for example. And passion means to care so deeply about something. I'm willing to endure pain for it. I'm willing to suffer for it. That's why we call the Passion of the Cross, the Passion of the Cross. Henry Nouwen writes this about compassion. He says, compassion asks us to go where it hurts, to enter into the places of pain, to share in brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak, vulnerable with the vulnerable, and powerless with the powerless. Compassion means full immersion into the condition of being human. Jesus becomes fully present to this woman in her pain, and he immerses himself in the condition of being human with her. He has incarnated into her world. And when we live this way, we live like Jesus, and people feel God's love through us. And what's the outcome of this? Well, in the scripture, we see a resurrection takes place. That as Jesus incarnates into this woman's world, having compassion on her, Jesus raises her son from the dead and this woman leaves more healed and more whole than before she met Jesus. And Jesus doesn't just give this woman her son back. He gives her her life back, her hope back, her future back. Jesus didn't come to to the town of Nain just to meet this woman. He was just passing by and so is she. But as he's heading into town, he notices her and he enters her world, healing her son and giving them life. This is a microcosm of the gospel, and it's not just an act of Jesus. It's a call to us as Christians to live in kind. When we incarnate into someone else's world, it's a healing and even resurrecting encounter. So you may be thinking now, okay, Alex, I get it. Got to learn to know this, our neighbors, if we're going to love our neighbors and fulfill the greatest commandments. And surprise, surprise, Jesus is great at this. Good for Jesus. He's perfect. I'm not. So how do I do this? And that's a good question. And that's a worthy concern. We are not Jesus indeed, but we are called to live as Christians in his image and his likeness. And what I mean by that is simply this. Every single human person is made in the image of God every single human person. But when we talk about being human and the brokenness, what we're saying is we may be in God's image, but we're not in his likeness. And this is the goal of the Christian life, to look, act, think, feel, be like our Father in heaven here on earth, to move from just being made in God's image to being made in God's likeness. And so one of the ways we can do that is through practicing incarnating into our neighbor's world. So even though we can't physically incarnate from earth to heaven or something crazy like that, we can still metaphorically enter someone's world without losing ourselves. And the best way I know how to do this is through the simple act of incarnational listening. David Augsburger says being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person they're almost indistinguishable. So I want to talk for the remainder of our time about what do I mean by incarnational listening and and how do we do that because I think there's two things we have to avoid and there are some things we want to become aware of and do. So in the same way that Jesus leaves his world in heaven and comes to our world earth, when we choose to truly listen to another person, we leave our world and enter theirs. However, there are two dangers in this. One is that we lose ourselves in that other person's world and the other extreme is that we just refuse to enter it because of the discomfort or pain or burden. So when we lose ourselves in someone else's world, this is what's called enmeshment or codependency, right? This is what happens when the lines that separate me from you are so unclear, they're easy to pass through. So if you get elevated and anxious, now I'm elevated and anxious. If you get angry, now I'm angry. If you're happy, I'm happy. If you're not okay though, I'm not okay. And and the emotional boundaries between the two of us are so muddy that we're enmeshed and we struggle to hold our own thoughts, feelings, and opinions when confronted with yours. This is what happens when we lose ourselves in someone's world and sometimes we can think that this is being loving or loyal or empathetic, but it's not. That This is doom to our relationships because we're actually not the same as the other person. And when we're enmeshed, we don't live in that reality that we're two separate people next to each other doing life together. That we actually do each have our own thoughts, feelings, and goals. We have our own strengths and weaknesses and we're not the same. But when we're enmeshed, we feel guilty that we're feeling or thinking or wanting to do something different. And so what happens is we either look for someone else to validate those feelings or we look to try to change that person so they adopt our feelings and thoughts and goals, right? in order for us to feel okay. And the result is we default to having to control and regulate other people as a manner of trying to control and regulate ourselves. That's one extreme of losing ourselves in someone's world and that's not incarnational, that's, that's relationally destructive. The other end of that extreme is independence. Independence says that I don't need you and you shouldn't need me. I'm self-sufficient and you should be too. You got a problem, figure it out. Don't come crying to me. I got through that without any help. You should be able to too. You know, the, the fight for independence is a fight for autonomy. It's a fight for freedom to make my own decisions and not be held down by your thoughts and feelings about them. I should be allowed to be whoever I wanna be and do whatever I wanna do, and I shouldn't have to change for you. I wanna be connected when that's what I want, but as soon as, you know, my freedom starts to get trampled on a little bit, I'm out. In other words, independence really refuses to enter someone else's world because I'm trying to preserve my own world. And there can be a number of motivations and things that go into each of these. But these are two dangers that we face when when working to incarnationally enter someone else's world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together describes the attitude of this kind of um, independent person as they listen. He says this, There is a kind of listening with half an ear that presumes already to know what the other person has to say. It's an impatient and inattentive listening that despises the brother or sister and is only waiting for a chance to speak and thus get rid of the other person. This is no fulfillment of our obligation and it is certain that hereto our attitude toward our brother only reflects our relationship with God. It is little wonder that we are no longer capable of the greatest service of listening that God has committed to us. And we're gonna to skip to the last slide of this quote. It's a little long, but I think it's so rich. And the last slide says, Christians who have forgotten that the ministry of listening has been committed to them by him who is himself the great listener and whose work they should share, we should listen with the ears of God that we may speak the word of God. So incarnational listening is what happens when we don't lose ourselves becoming enmeshed in someone else's world, but when we uh, also refuse to don't refuse to enter it, that we can keep that balance of, I'm fully entering your world, but I am still preserving, I'm I'm aware of who I am outside of it. So in our remaining time, I want us to um, come to an awareness about listening and then talk about some practical skills that help us do it. when it comes to incarnational listening, this quiz was really convicting for me, but it helped me come to an awareness of truth. You know, I thought of myself as a great listener for a very long time. And then I started dating my now wife, Amber, and she was quick to inform me. I was not as good at this as I thought I was go figure. <laughs> and I wish I had had a tool like this back then to help me clarify where I was falling short. Because it just took me a lot of years of hurting her feelings in order to become better at this. And Amber, I'm so grateful for you for enduring that with me. So I'm going to ask you 10 questions. And I want you to answer that question, yes or no. You can write it on a piece of paper. You can make a mental note. You can put it on your phone. But we're going to tally them up at the end. So the first question is, my friends, my close friends would describe me as a responsive listener, yes or no. Question number two is, when people are upset with me, I'm able to listen to them without being defensive, yes or no. Question number three is, I listen not only to the words people say, but also to the feelings behind their words and their body language, yes or no. Question number four, I have little interest in judging other people or quickly giving my opinion to them. Ouch. Question number five, I am able to validate another person's feelings with empathy. Question number six, I am aware of my defensive mechanisms in stressful conversations. For example, appeasing, ignoring, blaming, maybe minimizing or distracting, yes or no. Number seven, I'm profoundly aware of how the family I was raised in has shaped my present listening style. Number eight, I ask for clarification when listening rather than fill in the blanks or make assumptions. Number nine, I don't interrupt to get my point across when the other person is speaking. And number 10, I give people my undivided attention when they are talking to me, yes or no. So if you if you said yes to eight out of 10 of those statements, you are an outstanding listener. Great job. Keep up the good work. If you circled six or seven, you're a pretty good listener. There's some things to improve on, but you're doing well. You're on the right track. If you're four or five or yes, that's good. There's room for growth, but uh, you're not bad as a listener. And if you said yes to three or fewer, you got a lot of work to do. And I would guess some of your relationships are probably struggling in this area. If you want to be really brave, you can ask your spouse or a close friend um, to score you on this as well. And you may be surprised, I know that's really nerve wracking, but uh, it's helpful in building relationships and coming to an awareness of ourselves. So for some of us, that was an encouraging quiz. For others of us, that was very devastating and very troubling. And I just want to say wherever you're at, hey, no shame. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay? Nobody's perfect here. We just want to come to an awareness of reality and be honest with ourselves and go, okay, Lord, I need your help here. I need you to do something in me because this is an area I'm not living like Jesus yet. And I want to grow in that. And I know I've had to do this a lot over the years. So. Finally, I, I want to uh, communicate some skills that I think really help us move from just a conversational listening to a true incarnational listening. And, and those skills are this. Number one, whenever we're listening, we want to give the speaker our full attention. We're not on our phone. We're not like watching a show and kind of talking on the side. We're focused. We're, in- we're listening. We're truly paying attention. Number two, we want to step into the speaker's shoes. And this is important. Often we judge other people's behavior on what we would or could do in their situation, not on what they would or could do in their situation. And we really want to remove ourselves and go, they're not me. They have their own set of strengths and weaknesses, and I want to see through their eyes, not just judge them through mine. Uh, we want to avoid judging, judging or interpreting as well, meaning jumping to conclusions uh, about you know what they're doing as good or bad or right or wrong right away. You know we, we want to really intake. We want to ask questions instead of offering solutions. And Kate talked about this a little last week. Um, questions are so powerful because often when I'm rushed to offering solutions, they're usually about me, and it's a different. It, making an observation is different than offering a solution, right? Offering a solution sounds like, well, you know what I would do in that situation? Well, back when I experienced that, well, you know, when I struggled with, right? And you can even hear my first words are about me. I'm no longer listening to you. I'm trying to tell you to change, right? And there's a place for that. And there's a time for teaching people information and skills they may simply just lack. And that may be part of why they want you to listen, but we want that to be invited. We don't wanna just demand that by taking over the conversation. An observation on the other hand is, you know, I'm noticing you brought this up several times. Why do you think that is? You know, I've seen a theme here. You mentioned here, here, and here. You know, it's interesting to me that you got angry at your mom about that. Why do you think that is? Right, that this is uh, more helpful than just offering solutions as we're listening. Next, we wanna reflect back as accurately as we can what we heard that person say. And when they're done, we want to ask, is there any more? And one of the tools I use for this, a little vocal mechanism, is I'll say, what I hear you saying is, is that true? Or I'll say, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're saying, something like that. And then finally, when they're done, ask, of everything you shared, what's the most important thing you want me to remember? And this one is so crucial because it just really helps that person know like, man, you really are trying to hear me. And when we do this, we're helping that person synthesize and sift through their own stuff. Henry Nouwen reminds us in this beautiful quote from his book Out of Silence that from experience, you know that those who care for you become present to you. When they listen, they listen to you. When they speak, you know they speak to you. And when they ask questions, you know it is for your sake and not their own. Their presence is a healing presence because they accept you on your terms and they encourage you to take your own life seriously. I love that, that when we truly listen to other people in an incarnational way, we are a healing presence that encourages people to take their own lives seriously. The great commandments are to love God and to love people. And in order to love people, we have to learn to notice and listen to them, entering their world without losing ourselves. And when we are able to listen to our neighbor incarnating into their world, we live out the kingdom of heaven on earth and we become a healing and even resurrecting presence. So let me ask you, who this week do you need to incarnationally listen to? Is it someone from your Frank list, a friend, relative, an acquaintance, a neighbor, a coworker? Is it your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend? Is it your kids? Maybe you need to make time to listen to a friend or a neighbor. Whatever it is, I just encourage you to really Um, practice this, to try this, this week. And wherever you find yourself this morning feeling like, man, this is awesome, I feel like I'm good at this, I'm so excited what God can do. Whether you're feeling defeated, like, oh my gosh, (laughs) I wish I hadn't taken that quiz, this is so hard. Wherever you find yourself, whether you're a follower of Jesus or whether you're just checking faith out, I want you to know that Jesus did not come just to incarnate into earth, or into this woman's world, he came to incarnate into your world. And that Jesus wants to know you, and he wants you to have life and life in all of its fullness. And I wanna invite you, if you have yet to follow Jesus, or if you have wandered away from relationship with him, he has arms wide open welcoming you home, and he wants to hear from you today. When He died on the cross, He took all of our sin and shortcomings, and He put those things to death. And when He rose from the dead, He gave us access to this kind of life, a healing, whole, resurrected life. And that's available to you. And so I want to invite you to pray with me now, so that we might become people like Jesus, made in God's image and looking in His likeness that we might be healing presences on the earth who truly can live like a good neighbor. Would you pray with me? Lord, I come before you today just in need of you. I just recognize, Lord, that there are so many places in my own soul I am just way more selfish and uh, way more scared than I thought. Father, I just recognize that um, I've hurt people with this and I have ignored people and been distracted. But Lord, I don't want to live that way. I want to be a healing and whole presence that uh, transfers your healing and wholeness to other people. Lord, I just surrender every area of my heart to you. I just give you full access and I ask that you would transform me so that Lord, I might join you on your mission to transform the world. I just ask, Lord, that you do a miracle in me so that I might love people and listen to people like you. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you just prayed with me, please reach out to us. We want to help you walk and follow Jesus in this beloved community he calls the church. See you next week.